0: TL Talk Radio, Season 6, Episode 34. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 34 of TL Talk Radio. I'm Lynn funy And
1: I'm Randy Zickenfoos. Today, we're speaking with Kale Burke, co-author of the book PLC 2.0, Collaborating for Observable Impact in Today's Schools, and the accompanying toolkit, which is filled with tools and protocols. Kale is also the co-author of another great book, Changing Change Using Learner-Centered Design. And we chatted with Kale and his co-author, Charity Allen, on an earlier podcast that we'll share in the show notes. Kale is currently a district principal of innovation in British Columbia, one of the highest-achieving educational jurisdictions in the world. As a former teacher and high school principal, Kale has worked with educators, district leaders, healthcare professionals, and industry leaders in Canada, the U.S., Australia, and Asia, to reimagine the experience of teaching, leadership, and collaborative learning.
0: So welcome back to the podcast, Kale.
2: Oh, thank Thank you Thanks again for having me today. Excited to be here.
0: So let's get our conversation started about the why of PLC 2.0. What are the challenges you've seen in educational practice, and how is PLC 2.0 addressing those challenges?
2: Yeah, a great question. And perhaps I can get a give you a little bit of background. I always like to introduce myself as a recovering principal, um, mostly because I used to read books and write blogs and go to conferences and do all those things and then, and then come back and shake off all the knowledge that I had gained all over my poor teachers and wonder why people would literally run in the other direction. I, I think I may have chased every shiny object for a while there, but The one that I felt that was going to make the biggest difference in terms of changing the learning experience for students and adults was providing this embedded collaborative time within the timetable. And So we were going to become a PLC, uh, a professional learning community, which is a model that as we know is well known across North America and around the world. And We jumped in with both feet as a staff and created the timetable that gave teachers that weekly collaborative time. and did all the things that we thought we were supposed to do in terms of essentializing curriculum and trying to create common assessments and providing more time and support for those students who struggled. Um, and at one point we were even recognized as a, as a model PLC school. However, um, shortly thereafter, I began to notice a number of challenges, some of the challenges that I think the book helps to address um, for, for teachers and leaders. And first of all, the classroom experience actually hadn't changed that much for students. They were still doing similar work. They had a similar level of engagement. The same students were being successful, and actually the same students were were receiving interventions. And then the the next piece was that um, teachers began to really complain about collaboration. More and more outcomes became essentials. Our specials didn't know what to collaborate about. And actually, collaborative time became a lot like work. We were having trouble getting people to lead it. And in fact, the the low point was when one of our very best teachers actually asked me if she could collaborate by herself, which, um, as we Ouch. know, the research, the research is a bit unclear about that. But I think the, the the final straw was really when my superintendent asked me a pretty simple question, which is, what's the impact of your collaborative time and the professional learning that you're doing And to be blunt, that was really difficult for me to answer. There were some teams that seemed to be doing some good things sometimes, but in terms of the changes, it was pretty tough to tell. And then as I moved into this position as district principal of innovation, uh, I saw the gate study around teachers know best, and it reaffirmed what I was finding in my own school is that teachers around North America were saying the same thing, which really was despite all the time... Uh, resource, hard work, and effort, and collaborative time, and professional learning that we were doing. It wasn't really making the differences that we'd And so this is what motivated us to write the book, which is really to help schools answer a, a simple question, which is, what is the observable impact of our collaborative time and our professional learning? And in the book, we define that professional, or pardon me, that observable impact as, as changes in classroom practice that we can actually see that lead to positive student outcomes so it's not to say that we aren't having impact but rather to help schools determine which of their um, actions are having the impact that they want and connecting their actions to impact
1: so what i love about the book is that it's really based on this idea of of compelling us as leaders to and as educators towards inquiry you're asking that that question which is really around that key phrase observable impact. And the way that you've structured the book um, really supports that idea of practitioner inquiry. So could you talk to us a little bit about uh, how you structured the chapters in this sort of very user-friendly manner?
2: Yeah, uh, great. And I think if you recall from the last time we spoke together, my, my real passion is around user experience and designing with the learner at the center. And that was a big part of our first book. And one of the things that um, took me a long time to figure out is, is really a, a, a simple concept borrowed from the design world, which is if it doesn't work for the user, it doesn't work. And in, in education, the analog would be if it doesn't work for educators, it doesn't work. And, you know, being out of the classroom for a while, I, sometimes we lose touch as leaders which, with how busy um, teachers actually are. And so, as we know, when we did our ethnography, when we were designing this book, Um, we, We talk to teachers, lots of teachers and lots of leaders, and they are busy, and what we want, what we understood from them is that they want to be able to connect the content with their own context and then quickly move from theory to practice, followed by an opportunity to discuss how it fits into their thinking. So, and to be really blunt, the educators told us, we get that we might need to do something differently. We get that there's research to support making a change, but how do we actually do it? So with the book, Garth Larson, my my brilliant and talented co-author designed it to try and fit the natural reading tendencies that our reader wanted. A couple of basic questions or look-forers in the chapter to prime our mental pump. A story that resonates and some practical tools that can be used immediately on Monday with some reflection questions to guide the discussion. And with the toolkit we really spent an inordinate amount of time testing the tools and protocols in the book with teachers. We still do t- today. And in fact, um, we have modified a number of the tools already according to the needs so that we actually have a co-authorship that's taking place with the people that, that we're working with. So that's really the structure of the book is to meet the needs of the user.
1: And we'll get to some questions about that toolkit, which is amazing, mm-hmm. the, the tools that you have in there to really support that work.
0: So let's transition a bit and think about the PLC 2.0 model and how it's designed to support schools wherever they are in a change process as all of us are thinking about change and working to transform our schools to um, improve practice and student achievement and um, creating more learner centered opportunities
2: right yeah so great question and one of the things that we know Um, both from our personal experiences and the the research that we've done is that every district, every school, every team, and even every teacher are in different spots. And if a model has only one entry point and then a linear sequence to, to follow to move to improvement we found it actually created a bunch of different problems. People often had to start again. They would say, didn't we already do this? Didn't we already go through and try and essentialize the curriculum before? And, and how come this didn't work? And, and the other piece was that people were spending so much time developing common assessments, common outcomes, that they actually didn't get to the work. And so the, the reason that we changed or wrote the book in, in the way that we did is we wanted to provide multiple entry points for people. And so I'll run you through a little bit of the model. It has five questions, but the, the cool piece is, is that you can start with any one of the questions. And that was really important to us because every school is in a different spot. The first question um, is, is really what's our observable vision. And, you know, I think we've all seen, we all have beautiful vision statements there. Um, they always have these great aspirational ideas for the things that we want from our students. But the key difference in the observable impact model is working with teachers and leaders to make it truly observable. And, you know, we might have something that says we develop creative, collaborative, critical thinkers who are positive contributors in a global global society. But what does that mean for the grade six teacher who's just trying to keep a lid on her kids on a Friday afternoon? And so I, we believe that Richard Elmore really said it best, um, if you can't see it, you can't assume it. So what we really want people to think about is, is, what would a lay person actually see in the classroom that tells us that we are developing creative thinkers or collaborative thinkers or critical thinkers? And a vision that we can't actually see, we would say that would be a mirage. And so in the 2.0 model, we really go into detail to help schools and district create that observable vision. But if a school has already created a vision, great. We really wanna help them make that vision more observable. The second piece is, and the second step is really what's our evidence-based reality? And I know when we hear the word evidence, we often talk about data, achievement data, work habit data, survey data that we can collect, the number of students who are writing AP exams, which to me was always a bit of a bizarre measure. But in 2.0, we would call these box scores or educational box scores. These are the types of data that are often easy to collect, but we know that they don't tell the whole story of a school and why the data has led led to, um, to what we see in our students. So if schools are already collecting evidence, this is great. We give them tools and protocols to begin to go beyond the box scores and look at the data that leads to the box scores. What are the teaching moves, the practices in the classrooms? and the activities and assessments that we create to observe our vision and our students. And because we've created an observable vision, we want schools to take that vision into the classroom and see what's really coming to life. What can we actually see? The third piece is really about the learning that we need to do. And too much of our learning, our professional learning has really become what we would call Snapchat learning. That type of learning that's great at a Friday PD, but by the time Monday rolls around, we're sort of sucked back into the jet stream of teaching And the snap uh, the learning disappears Um, in 2.0 we know that schools already have pd plans but we really want to make impactful professional learning and one of the analogies that we would use is is that if we go out to buy a new house before we go and buy the house we would create a list of features that we were hoping to see to say that this house had impact you know three bedrooms two bathrooms a walk-in closet and a hot tub type thing We want to take that same analogy to professional learning. For a full-day PD on something like creating authentic tasks, what would we hope to see before we go to that professional learning? What would we hope to see that's different in our teachers, in our students? And by creating this sort of impact list prior to professional learning, we can actually see afterwards if it's made a difference. And I think the key piece is, is we really need to move beyond if I get one good thing out of a PD day. Um, You know, that to me is really bad, what we would say ROE, which is return on effort. Um, The fourth step is really about where we get to have fun. We get to try things out. We get to take those strategies and bring them into the classroom. But we also have observation protocols so that we can really allow people to start to see when I did this, then I noticed this. And then finally, it's really around what's our impact. And what we're trying to get people to do is move from, you know, this strategy was awesome or, boy, it was horrible, don't do this, to this was the impact that we hoped for with this strategy and this is the impact that we actually observed. And to borrow from our good friend Jenny Donahue, the most important thing we feel we can do is connect our actions to impact in a classroom. So we really want to take where a district is at, meet them where they're at, and connect their actions to impact.
1: So, a series of simple but yet powerful questions. And let's dive into the question around um, the observable vision. How might a school or a district go about creating a powerful vision for learning?
2: yeah, it's it's the probably the biggest question that we get asked um, as most people roll their eyes as we know when we hear the word vision. <laughs> and mostly because our experience tells us that everyone has a vision, but we don't actually see it. and you know, um, I was at the Cineplex uh, a few weeks ago and there was a huge sign that said Cineplex, we, we passionately deliver an exceptional entertainment experience. And at the same time, I had a you know very disinterested employee tell me that when I got to the front of the line that I'd have to move to the next line, which had 15 people in it because he was heading for a break. <sighs> so I didn't see passion. I certainly wasn't getting any exceptional entertainment. And what it showed me again is that our vision is not necessarily congruent with what people see. Mm-hmm. You know, One of the things um, that I've really been fascinated by is looking at other industries and even other things that we do, and, and seeing what we can learn. And a lot of people have done work around Positive Behavior Intervention System or PBIS, and I, I'm not here to endorse PBIS or, or deny it, um, but rather what can we learn from PBIS? And what's interesting is, is when it comes to PBIS and behavior expectations, We write them in really student-friendly language. They cover different contexts. We revisit these expectations all the time. And what struck me was that if we're willing to detail the concept of something like walking down a hallway, which, you know, I'm going to gamble and say that this is a relatively concrete skill that most students are going to master. If we're going to detail this down to the last detail degree, minute, and second, why wouldn't we do that same level of specificity in student-friendly language with something as abstract and complex as critical thinking? These things are hard. And in 2.0, there's sort of three main concepts. First, if we say our students are more diverse than ever, then when we create a vision, it's pretty important that we acknowledge that our communities are more diverse than ever, and we have to involve our communities in the development of the vision, not just from our perspectives as an educator. And we have tools to help teachers and leaders do this. The second piece is the vision has to be observable to anyone and everyone who will be impacted by it, which includes not only educators, but students and parents. So if we want students to learn to think critically, why wouldn't we take the same approach as we do with behavior and PBIS or learning targets in the classroom? Why wouldn't we describe it in a way that students can educa- and educators can actually see it? And the third piece is, is that we often make visions of the student. And of course we want students to know what students will be able to do and demonstrate, but we also want to know what is the teaching that would lead to students doing and demonstrating those things? Because what we do know is is having expectations and teaching expectations are very different things. So by making sure that we include our communities, um, by really making that vision observable and having it in student friendly language, and then finally having a vision that goes beyond the student but also to educator and the task. I think that's how we can really make an observable vision.
0: So earlier, Randy mentioned um, toolkit and protocols and um, how they can be utilized by schools and teachers and leaders. Why do you view the tools and protocols as important um, so that we can work to create that more observable impact in schools? Like, what's the value added for the resource?
2: Well, you know, it's funny because my answer is morphing on a daily basis. The majority of the work that I do now is actually with teacher teams. And um, what I have come to recognize is that um, teachers and leaders are incredibly busy and leading collaborative teams is really hard work. Prepping for collaboration meeting, collaborative meetings, is really hard work, and you know we often do this on our way to the meeting with a sandwich hanging out of our mouth, our cell phone on one ear, and a student bling on our sleeve as we walk down to the meeting. So we wanted to make the user experience of these tools very high for the people that we're going to be using them. First of all, they, they need to meet the, the needs of the team leaders. This, the tools are actually, and the protocols are step-by-step lesson plans that anyone can use. I know one of the things that used to happen with collaborative meetings is if the team leader wasn't there, the sort of foundations of the meeting shook and everyone panicked and didn't know what to do. We want to make it so that it doesn't matter who is leading the collaborative team meeting, the protocol can help guide us. The second piece is, is They need to meet the needs of all the team members. They've actually been designed using thinking routines and protocols that teachers can actually take back to their classrooms and use with their students later that day. So rather than just having a a collaborative time, what a concept if we could have a collaborative meeting where I walk away and go, hey, I can use something like an opinion line or a talking circle in my classroom next period. And I think one of the biggest things as well that comes along with it is they really meet the needs of the school leaders. Each of the tools is designed to create a visible and tangible product. And I I can tell you, I used to, um, because I wasn't always sure about what was going on in our collaborative meetings, I used to have our teachers fill out form after form detailing their agendas and what they accomplished. And you know, what was hard is that for even our highest functioning collaborative teams, this was a lot of extra work. What we wanted to do is make sure that principals don't have to force teams to fill out these forms, the team accountability forms like I had. We want our collaborative spaces to look like great kindergarten classes. When you walk in, you can quickly observe what people have been working on. And if a school leader wants to know what the social studies team is doing or the grade five team has been working on, we want those team leaders to have just a really simple response, which is just come into our collaboration space and you can actually see Mm. what we're working on. So, so we really feel that those key elements are the things that have made the protocols so popular right now with people who really want to do great, great collaborative work. They just need some guidance to be able Mm -hmm. to do it.
1: So good stuff. All right. As we, uh, head into the last lap of our conversation. We have a series of lightning response questions uh, for all of our guests, and so you actually get to answer them as well. Who is one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about change in our schools?
2: Well, you know, I I really want to give a a shout-out to uh, Jenny Donahue, who is a a fellow Canadian uh, as well, but is also, to me, the global thought leader Um, and author of Collective Efficacy. And if people haven't heard of the work she's doing, on the number one factor in Hattie's research list for impact in the classroom, they need to. She has worked with John Hattie personally and also uh, speaks to people all around the world, not only about change, she really talks about connecting change to impact, not changing for the sake of change. So Jenny Donahue is one that I think people should really uh, be thinking about right now.
1: Okay. How about a book? What book would you recommend to our listeners?
2: Um, I I still think A More Beautiful Question by Warren Berger is one of the most important books that any educator can read. The one thing that I find myself continuously working on is is how I can ask, um, in what we would call in in our 2.0 language, activation questions, questions that actually activate people's thinking. And I think Warren's work has completely influenced my work with schools with teachers and collaborative teams so I think a more beautiful question is a great one for people to read and it's a really fun read as well
1: yeah we actually did a podcast with him when he's when his book came out so we'll link to that in the show notes and he's coming on uh later this year to talk about his most recent book so awesome love love
2: him it's great Mm
1: -hmm. last question kale what online site resource or person do you learn from regularly
2: You know, while I I would like to name an educational luminary or design that's out there, I I have to tell you that I do my best learning now when I'm working directly on the ground with leaders and collaborative teams of teachers. And maybe it's just I'm getting older, but I'm at a point in my learning trajectory where I've read and and listened to a, a lot of theory, and it's important. But I'm finding right now the most rewarding work I can do is to take that research and marry it to practice in a way that's palatable for educators and, and people in industry. And, and I also think that's what's making the book and the tools so strong. So it's all the people that we're actually doing this work for are the ones that I'm learning the most from.
0: Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for sharing those resources. We link them in the show notes. Um, and if you're not gonna read the book, at least give a listen to the podcast with Warren Berger in a more beautiful question. So, Kale, last question. What are you working on now that you'd like to share with our listeners?
2: Well, we've, we've spent a lot of time helping um, collaborative teams and team leaders. So The next phase for the observable impact model is really to help build the capacity of school and district leaders to use the model to determine impact throughout their organizations. The observable impact model, and it's a really key point, is, is it is not another initiative it's actually the way to determine the impact of any action or initiative. And I think we we have yet to meet a principal or a superintendent that doesn't love the idea of their school or district vision, having observable impact where it matters the most, which is in their classrooms. So that's really going to be the next focus of, of our work. And we've also noticed that leaders outside of education and business and industry, are, are also interested in bringing division to, to, uh, to life throughout their organizations. So the, and what I'm finding is the more I can play outside of the education world, the more I see that we can learn uh, a lot from each other.
0: Thank you so much for sharing. And thanks for joining us, Kale. We'll look forward Thank to you. learning more about that work in the future.
2: Thank you, it's been great to talk to, to both of you and I really appreciate all the work that you're doing right now and, and the podcasts and the, the TL Talk Radio is, uh, is something that people shouldn't miss.
0: Thank you. Thanks for the shout out. To learn more about Kale's work, you could visit some of the links in the show notes. Um, we linked to the previous episode with Kale and the episode with Warren Berger. Also um, a link to those books, Collective Efficacy and A More Beautiful Question as well as a link to both of Kale's um, books. Each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation. This episode's question, how might the ideas in PLC 2.0 elevate your work around school change? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment, check out the resources shared today. Visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season six, episode 34. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with another conversation featuring other innovative thought leaders. Thanks again, Kale.
2: Bye-bye. Thanks again for having me.
0: Bye-bye.